Easy Worlds, your man and Pookie. Don't worry about the name. Get used to the voice. And it's another episode of Keeping the Towel. Thank you for rocking with me again. It's a pleasure to have you in the mix. And I am blessed to have you here. And y'all, it's a new second. It's a new minute. It's a new hour. It's a new day. And with that new day comes another round in this fight called life. And I want to make sure you're still in it with me. And y'all, I got a sparring partner in the gym. And I promise you, this one's going to be a dope one as always. And y'all, I'm going to just give it to you like this. If you ain't getting your gloves on for this one, yeah, well, I promise you, you will. I promise you. So, ladies and gentlemen, all the way from the N.O., yeah, Nolans, you know how it is, man, out there. I got my man, Mr. Ronnie Olivier. Mr. Ronnie Olivier, you in the building, good sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, man. Yeah, so he is in the building, and y'all, I promise you, you want to take a chance and listen to this brother, and we're going to go ahead and rock with him on why is it that my man is in this fight called life, and life almost took him out, but we're going to talk about why he's still here. So, Ronnie, this is what I need you to do. Make sure you get your hands wrapped, get your gloves on, get your mouthpiece in your mouth, make your way to the ring, and folks, I need you to gather around because this is going to be a great sparring match. And that knock on the door, Mr. Olivier, is for you to get out of your dress room and come to the ring. It's going to be Aunt Boogie and Ronnie. And we're going to touch gloves. And this round has officially started. Let's get it. Let's get it. Let's get it. So, Ronnie, let's yes, go sir. ahead and dial it all the way back to 1979. And we're going to go ahead and start from the Genesis Mr. Ronald Olivier. Well, yes, I'm a native of New Orleans. Um, oh, yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. And um, <laughs> grew up in a poverty-stricken area. Um, I can remember, you know, New Orleans is separated by wards. And I was staying in the seventh ward, and we moved from the seventh ward to the eighth ward. Man, I can remember like it was yesterday. I was, I was standing on my porch feeding the birds very nice neighborhood very quiet and something transpired in about the um late 1980s and it was the crack epidemic it came in and completely destroyed our neighborhood and you know with drugs always follows a lot of violence and i can remember when that took place man even the birds stopped coming out I was accustomed to hearing like police sirens and seeing dead bodies and seeing people shot. That was very common to me. Right before this transpired, this crack epidemic took place. Another big transition took place in my life. My dad, who was my, my hero, was everything to me. He, he ended up leaving and moving to Jacksonville, Florida. And man, I was really crushed. I was hurt. That hurt turned into anger. 14, 15 year old didn't know how to process that. Man, here comes this crack epidemic and all the things going on, on in the streets that, that begin to attract me. I aspire to be a, one of the biggest drug dealers. You know, I was, I was attracted by the cars, the sound, the rims, the gold teeth, the gold chains, and the, and the women that attracted, you know, these guys. And so these became my role models. So consequently, um, the streets began to fall to me. I became accustomed to their lifestyle. That was my normal. As a result, in, in 1991, Christmas Day, because of a prior altercation I had, got into it with some guys and Christmas Day didn't see me. It turns into a gunfight and 
um, and leaves one young man dead, 14, and the other one, 18, um, injured the bad. And I'm the man standing with the smoking gun. I'm 16 years old. About two days later, I ended up in the juvenile B-roll. You know, I had been there quite a few times before and, you know, was used to my mother coming, sign me out or, or an adult coming, sign me out. And so I thought that was going to happen this time. Mama couldn't sign me out of this. And so I went to court quite a few times, juvenile court, and then they they decided to charge me as an adult. And I was transferred to the adult jail and then rebooked and and then finally um on trial for first degree murder. And this is at the age um, of seventeen. Yeah, just about I'm I'm seventeen at that time. When I was arrested I was sixteen. By the time I get on trial, I'm 17 years old, facing the death penalty. And I can remember prior to that, everything was like a joke to me. I was very optimistic that I was going home, that this wasn't going to last long. But I can remember on at the trial when the jury was deliberating and they, they placed me in the holding tank. It was about 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. And I never forget, I could still hear the, the cell slam keys turned and locked me in there and I could hear the officer's foot fade away and I'm there alone and that's where the weight of it everything came down on me everything got real to me then mm. and I start to think there are 12 people right now that don't know anything about me that's determining whether I live or die they're making a decision on, on my life and I was like wow and I was like, man, I don't want to die. I can remember this. I know it was God using my mother's voice um, that she said years prior to the, that event. He said, baby, baby, if you ever in trouble that I can't get you out, you call on Jesus. And right there in that holding tank, I got on my knees. I'm crying. I was crying real tears. I'm crying. And I made a deal with God. A lot of people say you don't make deals with God. I made a deal with him. And my prayer was very simple. I said, Lord, if you don't allow them to kill me, I'll serve you the rest of my life. And for the first time in my life, I experienced the peace of God. Didn't know what it was then. It just was an inward feeling that everything was going to be okay. I just had that inward resolve that I was going to be okay. Couldn't explain how or why. So the jury came back with a guilty verdict of a lesser offense, which is the responsive verdict, second-degree murder. Second-degree murder carried a mandatory life sentence without benefits of parole or probation. In layman's terms, that means you die in prison. But I like to say it like this, at that time, in that moment, in that cell, I received two life sentences. <laughs> the state was giving me one with no benefits, and God was giving me one with so many benefits that he encourages in his word to not forget them. Oh man, so Ronnie, 17, a 17 year old Ronnie has mandatory life. Ronnie, what goes to you? Cause again, as you said that it was at the point where it's like, man, I ain't taking this too serious, whatever. But as you said, when you was in that holding part in the holding chamber, you were basically now it finally resonated with you what was the difference between this resonating with you and things you did before that didn't really let just yeah, crazy fell off your back right because um you know i never stayed in the b-room more no more than a day <laughs> and so uh, i was used to somebody come and sign me out uh, 
and not even having to go to court or things like that. And nothing happened. I was expecting that. And so this time it was different and I still was very optimistic. I think it weighed heavy on me to realize it. I, I think I couldn't really process what was really what was really going on because I was so young and so naive to the system that I was dealing with. They're gonna get it right. This 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 all I always thought my experience with a coat rump was, you know, watching TV. <laughs> You know, never, law and order. you know, yeah, law and order, <laughs> things like that. So I'm thinking, man, they're going to get it right. You know, <laughs> and they really didn't. And that cost me 27 years. So here, here I am. I'm headed to Angola, um, Louisiana State Penitentiary. This, this prison was labeled the bloodiest prison in the nation. And man, it, it preyed upon the young. Oh man, um, I was I was real young at that time. I was like, I was five eleven, um, one hundred and thirty one pounds. I literally grew up in prison. Yeah, it is. I can remember on that that long snake road, twenty mile road to Angola from off of sixty one. I'm thinking, man, what did I get myself into? Mm. And so I thought about this also. I knew I knew the history of Angola. Always heard about the stories and. And I'm like, man, um, I knew they preyed upon the young as far as raping them and, you know, turning them into these sex slaves and all this. And so I made a decision right there on the bus that, man, I'm going through this gate, a man, and I'm gonna leave out a man, whether I'm walking or, or carried out in the box. So I was I was ready to die. I had that type of chip on my shoulder going in. And I think a lot of guys noticed it, you know, you know, anything I thought wrong was wrong, I was checking it. And, confronting it you know <laughs> and probably nine times out of ten I was out there bad mm. but but I was establishing who I was and, yeah. and what I was willing to do and but overall when I look back on it man God was protecting me it wouldn't be because I thought I was so bad and I wasn't gonna do this or tolerate that man God was protecting so you didn't walk up in there with I dare the first person to come and touch me. There's gonna be yeah. some consequences and repercussions in here. So you didn't yeah. come in like that. Yeah, I came in like that. <laughs> okay, I had that type of, you know, chip on my shoulder. But <laughs> and nothing never, I never had any type of altercation to the to where I, my manhood was challenged. But um I credit it to man. It was God protecting me, man. Oh, he was with me, man. He was with me, and I was placed around some guys who was willing to help me and not hurt. I believe in that cell. I was born again, but I didn't. I wasn't um, you know, didn't have nobody disciple me and show me how this this walk goes. Show me how important it is to read the Bible, the fellowship, and develop develop a prayer life. So I didn't know any of that. Just like a newborn baby that comes out of the womb, you know, baby looks like what it been through. It don't come out looking like a little gerbil baby. We be saying it cute. Oh, they're so cute, but they be looking like a little dried up prune, you know. <laughs> and so they had to go through a process of being clean, fed, um, clothed, totally dependent. And so that's how I was in my newfound faith here. And man, God placed me around some people that was really helping me. It didn't look like, <laughs> it didn't really look like something happened to me until two years later. Wow. So, Rod, so Ronnie, when you in this notorious prison, 
because those of you don't know about Angola, yeah, look that up. And when the doors are closed, and it's different from the P-roll compared to this. When that gate is closed, you hear that door slam, the keys and whatever, and you seen all these guys in there, and now you're in your cell by yourself. Some I know sometimes they may put you with a bunk, and then other mm-hmm. times they put you by yourself. When did it come to Ronnie meeting Ronnie, and Ronnie realized, huh, this is I I, I think I did something wrong here. Um, I think um. Man, still, I was, amazingly, I still was so optimistic. I just knew this wasn't going to last long. Crazy as it sounds, and there was a part of me wrestling with, you know, um, wanting to live right and do the right things and change, and the old self of how I was used to operate. And so there was always that fight and struggle going on. And so there was some points, and I was like, hey, look, this, long, this here gives me street credibility. You know, I done been to the big house right. and survived. So when I get home, look, I'm going to be on and blah, blah, blah. And that's my mindset. And But on the other hand, God is really um, challenging me to change. And even though I was doing some of the same things and still talking the same way, I wasn't comfortable with it anymore. I was being convicted. I felt bad about it when, when I used to be comfortable with it. So that was the evidence that something had changed in me. And so um, when I first went, they put me in a one-man cell because of my age. CCR, closed cell restricted, where you be in the cell on um, 23 hours. You get an hour on the hall. And there's a TV there on the um, tier, and and they bring your canteen to you. You just Your movement is very restricted. And every time you're outside of the cell or that till you're handcuffed and shackled. And so I stayed in there and I'm very extroverted. I'm not an introverted person. And so that cell, they had planned to keep me there until at least I was on 21. By the time I get to Angola, by the way, I was 18 years old. They had planned to keep me in there till I was 21. And and so in protecting me and possibly protecting somebody else and if I just go off or something. So just to try to integrate me into that that new life, that new um, way of living, um, they kept me in there. And man, after about, after about five or six months, the LaSalle went to closing in on me. I, I didn't like that. And I was like, man, so there's a board every 90 days that review you, that allow you to go to population in different areas of the prison. And so, man, I actually, they, that's when I found out they was going to keep me there at 21 to, to the age of 21. And I actually begged them. I said, man, listen, this cell closing in. I'm going to be okay. I'm all right. Um, please just give me a chance. You know, let me let me get out of this. And so they did and let me out. I ended up going to um, a working cell block where you work in the field and you're in the cell with someone. Yeah, pretty much slavery. It was crazy, you know, you you in the field with gun guards over you in case somebody run. It was a scene like the 1800s. And as crazy as sound, I was happy because I was out. At least I could get out. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't handle the cell. You was out there for I what, eight hours? We would go out there. had to be out there for like 8 a.m. They bring us back in at 12 for lunch. Then we go back out at 1, 1 to 4. Yeah. I was, wow. Yeah. And gold is 18,000 acres. And so um, that's a lot of land. They always found something for you to do. And 
Yeah, and then they was growing their own crop, chicken, and after about um about four or five months of that, uh, I went into population where there's a dormitory with 61 guys in a dorm together. And from that point, I been, I went to excelling and moving forward. Oh man, God, man, this placed me around some a great group of guys, man. <laughs> man, you wouldn't believe the amazing guys that's, that's in prison and who just made some bad decisions, you know, and deserve another chance. And man, they helped me Man, they have some that's still there who mentored me. They didn't get the opportunity that I got to come home. Man, they're the one helped me be the man that I am today. And they're still stuck there. I eventually started, when I first went down, they call it down the walk in the population. My, my sanctuary was the, the law library. I was like, man, I'm gonna get out of here. I'm not staying here. I would not die at this time in Angola when you went to Angola you don't come home that's not something common so people die in Angola the average sentence the minimum sentence you could have to even go to Angola was 50 years so it was 50 oh. years and up wow you know, 50 years and most of the guys who was there was lifeless you know yeah some guys were 99 years I remember they had one guy had six life sentences five nine and nine year sentences and one 17 year sentence oh my god insane you didn't go to and go and go home you know very man it was very frequent very infrequent that somebody would trickle out and go home you just didn't see people going home now you saw a lot of old guys getting older there and dying you know there's a angola has its own cemetery called point lookout and wow. that area just kept swelling you didn't leave there but but I still amazingly, man, I still was hopeful. <laughs> I was really? like, man, I just had an inward resolve that I wasn't gonna die here. When mm. all the circumstances said differently. Right. You know. Right. All the circumstances said differently. And so as you're basically getting mentored by some of the OGs in there, and now you're as you said, you started seeing a difference. There was a conviction now coming over you that things that you said, ways how you acted started to have a, a profound effect on you. When did it come to this point where you started literally now diving into your faith or develop a faith, I should say, and then dived into it? It started from a fight I had. I got into an altercation with a guy and they shipped me to the outer camps and left him in the main prison. And it was at the outer camps. I was trying my best to get back to the main prison. The main prison is the place like to be. That's where all the access at, all the programs, all the schools are. And so everybody tried to get to the main prison. The outer camps don't have um, that like that. And so, so while I was doing- So lockdown? Yeah, but it, it was a dormitory there. It was the camp I was in. Not the lockdown, but it was a dormitory, another dormitory. They have dormitories back there also. Man, God went to really change it. That's when it happened for me. I remember, man, I had a real foul mouth, man. I was a professional cusser. I could hook him up. <laughs> you put words uh, together like, that, that's a uh, curse word. Man, what? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, man, that's one of the things I was really trying to change, man, because I start to hear other people, I'm like, man, that's how I sound, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so I tried everything to stop me and a group of friends was trying until I never forget, um, 
man, one night I was I was in my in my own bed and I'm listening to my headphones. I'm listening to Master P. I'm listening and man, I heard something so loud in my ear that said, What are you doing? I literally took the headphones off to look around, see who said it. And I was like, oh, I'm tripping. I put them back on. You know, I'm listening to it and I hear it again, man, what are you doing? And it's for the first time and the only time I ever heard like the audible voice of God, man, it was, it came through my headphones. And I said, man, Lord, forgive me, man. Um, and, and from that moment there, I got rid of all the tapes, cassettes I had. I had a whole collection. I had a, a brother-in-law that worked at the records store so anything hot that came out he was sending it to me people was borrowing the tapes for me i was checking them out man at first i was about to just give them away and the lord really impressed upon my heart if it's not good for you it makes you think it's good for them so i went to tan them up throwing them away and guys were like oh man what you doing what you doing you going crazy oh man he crying he, he losing his mind you know in which I was, I needed to lose that mind. <laughs> right. And so here it is, um, I never forget. I went to sleep that night and I woke up a different way, literally. It was like two or three weeks before I realized I hadn't said a cuss word. Blew my mind and to this day, I never had <laughs> used profanity, no slip ups or nothing. And so man, God really, really delivered me from that. And he started working in my life that man now you start to participate some programs yeah. out there yeah to, in in faith what was the first program that you participated in in your mental and spiritual rehab it probably was just going to church at first and then got into ged school got my ged because when i went to prison i was like in the ninth grade, I still was in high school. And so here it is, um, I got my GED, went to get in a lot of spiritual um, things that built me spiritual programs, spiritual programs like experiencing God and making peace with your past and things like that, search for significance. Mm. And man, it went to really helping me and changing me and giving me a, wit, a, 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 a completely new way of, of looking at things, a new perspective. and. Later, man, in 1995, and Gola established a Bible college there, a seminary. New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, where you can earn up until a bachelor's degree in Christian wow. ministry. And I was like, man, I'm going, I'm going in there. So I got into Bible college in 1999 and graduated in 2005 with a, with a bachelor's degree in Christian ministry. Oh, man. It was really awesome. We had a real a real graduation with caps and gowns. The faculties came in. Man, you wouldn't even knew it was in, it was prison, you know. Mm. It was just like a graduation. We invited our family. My mother was there, sister and some family was there, and um, we had a little reception where we ate and just celebrated together. Um, yeah, that part, Ronnie. During your time, away from your family, moms, pops and everything and you at one point they saw you leave you were one Rodney they come back they see a Rodney who now has a bachelor's in ministry what was this like when they came back and they like huh so what was that like and so they always visit me as the year you get two visits a month and 
my mother was coming twice a month, you know, for years. And they gradually were seeing me change right before the eye. My conversation changed. My my desires began to change. My questions began to change, you know. Mm -hmm. Just my whole conversation. And they went to noticing it. Once you do that, see that at first, you're kind of skeptical. Right. You know, you're right. like, how long is this going to last? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. When, when the real him going to come out, you know? <laughs> and not knowing that, man, the, the person who I was was really the fake me. <laughs> that that mm. that they was experiencing the real me. All oh, that was fake. And so here it is, years later, just, just consistent with it to, man, my family would call on me for advice. For my, my sisters or brothers that make major moves in their life, they confined in me and asking me what I think. And so, man, um, and so I pray for them and, and, and give them some advice. And man, it just, it just was amazing that how people, even though I was in prison, they was pulling on me for direction in their life, you know, because they saw something different. As we hear that you become the product of the environment as you were, yeah. and then mm -hmm. now your environment became a product of you. Ronnie, did you see that your environment was now becoming a product of you? Yes, definitely. Man, the, the prison was completely changing. The culture was changed. I remember um, me and a couple of friends sat on the ledge and, and joked about, man, it's been a while since we even saw a good fight. <laughs> you know, least on some violence because, man, a lot of guys were getting killed in prison. And all of a sudden, all the fights stopped. You'll see something you've never seen before, like brothers embracing each other. You, you ain't do no hugging in prison. Right. <laughs> but that changed. That became custom to us. Yeah, that was that was like, man. And and another thing was, um, I, I can remember Wheaton College come for their spring break and just hang out with us. You know, they, they'll come on the yard, in the prison, play basketball. I'm talking about females and everything. You'll see an inmate with um, a little kid, a little girl on his leg. You know, the chaplain's daughter. That was like, man, what's going on here? It turned into, so here it is, the Bible college went to producing all these ministers until the gospel was preached in every crack of the prison. So after you graduate, you're, you're assigned as an inmate minister. That's your job, to make rounds. It's time to assign you an area. You make rounds and make sure God's spiritual well-being is okay. And, and so it, that was the change in the prison. And so the the Bible college went to producing all these ministers until they went to stacking up on each other. And I believe um, the former ward, Burr Kane, came up with a God idea. Okay, we're going to send out missionaries. <laughs> this is crazy. This is insane. So he went to sending out missionaries from the Bible college to other prisons in, in Louisiana to assist chapters and pastor churches. And man, I decided to go to one of them. And man, uh, completely changed my life. You know, I got connected with the chaplain there. He taught me so much in leadership, man, and, and just matured me as a man. Right. And we did some great things there. We we wind up having a great problem there with it, where we had to turn guys around for church. It was so packed. So we convinced the ward to add on to make make the um chapel a little bigger. And they did and they did. And man, we did a whole lot of programs and yeah, and, and changed a lot of people's lives. I think one of the reasons I'm sitting here today, man, uh, God put on my heart to do a, um, a prayer meeting. And those prayer meetings always come up short. You know, not many people go to prayer meetings. Right. You know? 
And so I put a, I put a fly up in every dormitory, sharing with guys concerning their freedom. Because some people was bored out of court. They had a lot of time and they wasn't going home for a long time there. Even though lifers wasn't there at that prison. I actually asked them on the fly, man, to bring all your paperwork, bring your bring your um, transcript, bring your master prison records, and we're going to put them on the oath. They got another judge higher than the judge. You know, there's another coat higher than a coat we're gonna bring it was amazing the response hundreds of guys came to the chapel they had paperwork <laughs> everywhere yeah i'm talking about all over the altar wow. and man just think about think about the fate that that took for guys to dig up their legal work and pass the law library up and bring it to the chapel mm-hmm. man god honored that man the presence of god came in there man like Man, it was amazing. We had scriptures all around the wall where guys can walk around and pray the scriptures concerning freedom and just declare them. And man, as a result of that, man, guys just went to going home. Guys went to going home who, who had nothing in coat, didn't even know how he was getting home. And they stopped by the chapel on the way out and just, man, I'm gone, man. I don't know what's going on. And so, man, God, I'm talking about he went to doing miracles after miracles. I just rejoiced with him and said, man, hey, sooner or later, my time coming. Wow. So you're watching guys who was there more than likely before you. Right. Some just got it and they getting out one after right. one, right? So, Ronnie, you're now reformed, right? Yeah. You're watching these and you're seeing, of course, during the time, as you say, you sitting on the ledge like, man, we ain't seen a good fight in a minute. But at this same time, you seeing a lot of young cats still coming in, in and out, and yeah. you know, coming yeah. through. What was it that you would say to those young guys when they will come in? Because I'm, I'm sure, as you know, you're seeing someone who looked just like you, who came in with the right. anger, the chip right. on the shoulder, and they right. came in. Anybody who touched me, they sounded like Ronnie right. 1.0. So, right. How did you get to interact, or should I say, reach Man, um, with those guys? In Angola, they developed a reentry program where it was a lot of mentors, there was lifers, and a lot of young guys were sentenced to Angola, like for the judge might sentence them to 10 years. But if you go to the reentry program in Angola and, and complete all the um, requirements, you go home in two years. Really? Yeah, but if you don't complete it, your previous sentence is reinstated. You have to do the 10 years. And so they will come to us, and there was a dormitory just for them to come to us and for us to mentor them. And man, I can remember, because I was trying to figure out, I know they talked about my generation, how bad we were, but I'm looking at these young guys. I'm like, man, what's going on? And and this would help me understand them. Um, I, I was sitting on on one of them bed, the smallest one in the dorm, and the one who was the most chaotic, you know. And I'm trying to make a connection with him, trying to show him I've been where he's man. So we went to talking about stealing cars. I just stole cars before, okay. And so he told me something that blew my mind. He said, "Man, the first time I stole a car." my daddy showed me how to do it. I was like, whoa, your dad, you know? We're talking about selling drugs. He said, the first time I sold drugs, my mama put the drugs in my hand. And so my generation, we was hiding from our parents and and grown-ups and things like that. They're getting it from their parents. You know, the first authority figures in their life. 
and <laughs> it's a wonder that they're so messed up for the first time in their life they experience having a real father figure in Angola the guys with life sentences that's teaching them you know we are social the social mentors they had to be with us all day we we help we bring them to class make sure they get the class make sure they get where they gotta go just helping with life skills and things and a lot of man went home and really was successful man we had them in church with us man and they went to change and they went to sin you know god just using us to to really get them guys a great picture of what a man would be and and a lot and we had life centers so we was like vicariously living our lives through them 